who is this Persian, Persian poet from long ago. It's called A Strange Feather. All the craziness, all the empty plots, all the ghosts and fears, all the grudges and sorrows have now passed. I must have inhaled a strange feather that finally fell out. You know how this is, you know, like getting a bug in our shirt and how uh, how crazy we can be, you know, like surprised, shocked, and feeling personally violated that that bug got in there. And, uh, you know, we can act in ways that maybe we're not too proud of. I've seen myself freak out these things, being surprised by these things. Or, you know, how obsessed we can be by a sliver or some food in our tooth, you know, a little nail that's off in our hand. And uh, really the theme for this retreat is understanding this, kind of learning what skillful means, what actually works with this mind that's upset or this mind that's agitated, this mind that's disturbed. And it's a little bit like this example that Habis is giving, you know, where we've inhaled something or we've stumbled upon something and and all of a sudden we lose our cool. And the question is, well, what do we do about it? And the trouble is when once we've lost our cool, most of our ideas of what to do about it aren't very good. <laughs> you know, they, they involve cursing or jumping around or thrashing about. That's why in Buddhism there's such an emphasis on being reflective, you know, and really understanding cause and effect. So I want to review a little bit um, from last night and then continue on. So um, last night we began looking at two attitudes that are that seem to be really useful to have in at our disposal. This sense of urgency or this capacity to make a commitment to, for example, have a resolve to direct the mind in a particular way. Stick-to-itiveness, I guess you could say. A kind of respect for our predicament and our willingness to, in a sense, to rise to the occasion, like, oh, given that it's like this, this is what needs to be done. You know, in the same way that I, you know, I didn't watch too much of the news, but I I caught a little bit of the whole hurricane hitting the East Coast. And, you know, you can just imagine how many thousands of people rose to the occasion. It wasn't what they wanted to have happen. But they, you know, got together and they did what needed to be done, put the sandbags out, shut the gas off, you know, boarded the windows or whatever people do in that situation, get themselves evacuated. And that same kind of energy, this is that sense of urgency or willingness to see what we see, acknowledge what we see, and then respond appropriately. Like we're respecting what we're seeing in the mind. Oh, oh, this is what's going on. Oh, that means that I should really do this. I should do this. You know how it is when we catch ourselves over and over again. You know, there starts to arise this sense of urgency. You should really stop doing that. That's really not good for you to do that. And it may take many waves before finally the wave is strong enough that wave of urgency, that combination of clarity, you know, that wise clarity, and um, a sense of respect and respect for ourselves and our well-being. It's really an assertive form of compassion. 
I've been saying in the small groups, you know, that the sense of urgency and the sense of patience, they're not really like one's the heart and one's the mind. It's not that simple. You could talk about them both in terms of love, both in terms of wisdom. So that's what we talked about last night, that we want to uh, be reflecting in terms of skillful means, in terms of like what might be useful, both of these qualities, the capacity to commit, to act, to dig in, to stick to it, and the capacity to forgive, to start over, to be patient, to be gentle, to understand that uh, we're not in control, that there are many things at play. And we only have as much confidence as we have. We only have as many resources as we have in any moment. So this is the reason for forgiveness and patience and gentleness, because things are the way that they are. I mentioned that uh, Larry Rosenberg talks about this in his book, Breath by Breath, and he mentions, as I mentioned last night, Ajahn Mahabua, who was chiding the monk, and he mentions Thich Nhat Hanh representing another tradition. I just want to read a couple paragraphs. So this is his response to hearing Ajahn Mahabua criticizing that monk for putting his cup near the edge. When I first heard that rhetoric, I, was ter- I wasn't terribly drawn to it. This is Buddhism? There's so much aggression in it. But the tradition goes back to uh, ancient texts and is saying, watch your step. Your life is at stake here, and the lives of people you care for. Pay attention. It's trying to convey the urgency of practice to remind us of what we're up against. Thich Nhat Hanh represents another tradition. His strategy, in effect, is to emphasize love of the kalesas, the the different defilements, different negative habits of mind. The same way Jesus said to love our enemies. That keeps you from creating a situation that is angst-ridden and dramatic and from setting up a a dualism full of conflict and struggle. You don't see the kilesas as alien foreign bodies, but as part of yourself to be accepted with love. Then he goes on a little later, Larry Rosenberg does, and says, There is truth in both of these approaches, the urgency and the acceptance, the love. More and more, as I teach and practice, I see that the kilesas, these negative habits of mind, really are powerful and dangerous forces, and if anything, practitioners take them too lightly. These forces can do great, a great deal of harm, but it is also true that attacking them, wishing they didn't come up, does not work. <coughs> they have to be accepted as parts of consciousness and allowed to flower so that you can see just what they are, really come to know them and allow them to disappear. We don't want to take too soft an attitude because that doesn't show a proper respect for the power of these states, but we also don't want to attack them. Both of these approaches are essentially metaphors. They both have advantages and problems because no use of language can cover everything. In a way, our retreat, you know, being here together, it, it gives us perfect opportunity to exercise both of these attitudes. You know, there will be all kinds of opportunities to really stick to it, you know, whatever it might be. Um, maybe there you are at the end of lunch, having, having eaten enough, but sort of wanting more, you know, because you're distracted or you just, you want a distraction, I should say, or you just don't want to deal with whatever's next, like going down to your room or going back to your practice. And, you know, but but you're really clear, you know, I'm full, (laughs) I don't need to eat more. And then just that little dance you can do right then where you sort of dig into that clarity. Oh yeah, I really know I don't need more. As much as it would be okay to eat more, you know, I could get away with it, nobody would notice or it wouldn't be a big deal, 
I don't need to eat more. So I can, in a sense, as practice, I can stare down that loud voice in the mind that's saying, you know, go get more. There's lots left. It's good. It will taste good. It will give you something to do. <laughs> it might make you happy. I mean, that's really the promise it whispers to us, right? Now, I know it didn't make the first helping didn't make you happy, but <laughs> that second helping, I'm pretty sure it's going to make me happy in some real, lasting, meaningful way that I've been missing my whole life. <laughs> that portion will do it. I brought some, uh, before I left, I brought some dark chocolate ginger candies that they sell at the co-op. Really nice. And uh, I've had several today. (laughs) And I can tell you, you know, on the one hand, they're, they're very tasty. And on the other hand, it doesn't lead to any lasting happiness. Guaranteed. I mean, I really see that over and over again. (laughs) <laughs> and it's such a poignant place in practice to, because we can put another piece in our mouth. You know, I can afford to buy them. I can, uh, I can justify, find different ways of justifying putting them in my mouth. But I, I'm noticing, like with all of these different sense treats that I use to, you know, act out this ancient. You know, if I have that, then I'll be happy. You know, I'm just noticing a sense of exhaustion, a sense of that fearless presence that says, do you really need to do that? I mean, yeah, it's okay. And it's really that balance about not not doing it because I'm being mean to myself or I'm being judgmental. You know, it's so easy for us to be scolding other people who are doing things we know aren't good for them. I mean, obviously we don't necessarily do it out loud, but we do it internally a lot. We see somebody, you know, clearly doing something they shouldn't be doing. Idiot. <laughs> but there's a there's another kind of clarity, you know, this, um, this sense of commitment to the truth that we're seeing, not afraid to sort of acknowledge, yeah, we see that clearly. I'm going to... I'm going to align with what I know to be true. I'm going to live according to what I know to be true. And really finding the fruit of both of these attitudes of the patience and the the great wisdom, the great heart of patience and forgiveness and being gentle, willing to include everything. You know, there's so much wisdom in that attitude and there's so much wisdom in being fearless and sticking to what we've come to see that is true in our life so that's what we talked about last night and you know hopefully for the whole retreat we'll be reflecting on these um, two skillful means and you know that that's such a useful term and it's used quite a bit in Theravada Buddhism especially um, so that we're not thinking that there's one way, but we're, we're understanding because the whole path is about balance, then the skillful means a different medicine. Sometimes we need to get nudged this way and sometimes we need to get nudged that way. We can't just say, yeah, I'm into urgency or I'm into being committed or I'm, I'm into action or I'm into acceptance and receptivity. And then we can have all kinds of arguments about being assertive versus being receptive and what's the right way and are you with me or are you against me? And then we feel threatened by people who have different views than us. And then the other skillful means uh, debate, you know, that we often bump up against is like, do we direct the attention? Do we ask the attention to do something when we're on retreat? Or do we just let the attention do whatever it wants? And so another thing we can do all retreat long is just get a sense of the directing of attention as a skillful means. When is that skillful and when isn't it skillful? And when is it skillful to let go of that need to direct the attention? And when is that not skillful to do? And how to skillfully let go of directing the attention? And how to skillfully pick up that strategy of directing the attention. 
So we'll learn through all of our successes and all of our failures at both of these um, spectrums, you know, of skillful means, both in terms of the attitude, sense of commitment and urgency and assertiveness, all the way to this side of yielding and receptivity and acceptance and forgiveness and gentleness. And this other one from actively directing the attention to actively practicing not directing the attention, non-doing, you know, doing and non-doing. And you see there's similarities between these two spectrums. But this is the path that we're negotiating all the time. And it's especially troublesome because, you know, nowadays we're exposed literally to hundreds. Even if you don't, like, go out of your way to hear different teachers or different lineages, you just can't help it, having conversations with friends. We're just exposed to so many different practice perspectives, dharma perspectives about what to do with the mind, how to work with the heart, how to relate to experience. And so it's really essential that we have this sense of skillful means and that not in terms of looking for the right way once and for all so I don't have to think about it anymore. Just tell me. You know, and this is what sets us up. And you see this, well, maybe it's everywhere, but I see it in the West because maybe that's where I live or maybe we're more prone to it, I'm not sure. But, you know, because of this tendency where there's so much information now, and then the tendency is to be a little wishy-washy, like when things get hard to try something else. And then that's endlessly frustrating because we're not digging in anywhere. We're not really learning the lay of the land. And in a way, we get susceptible to somebody with a lot of confidence who says, this is the way. You know, and we endlessly, endlessly want to jump on board. Okay, tell me what to do. You know, until we get, either it gets difficult and we say, wait, it's too hard. Or we start to uh, mis- you know, mistrust their certainty that this is the way. You know, and then we abandon ship and feel lost for a while until we jump on board somewhere else. So it seems like given our predicament where there are a lot of good teachings and, of course, a lot of probably not so good teachings around these days, um, half-baked teachings or whatever, but there's certainly a lot of good teachings around. But we need to have a a way to relate to these different teachings and to develop an independence with them so that we understand how they work, like understand them as medicine and like when you use this medicine and when you use that medicine. You know, like in Chinese medicine system, you know, it's like, are you damp? Do you have a heat disorder, coolness disorder? Some of you probably know this he's better than I do, but... You know, it's sort of like same thing spiritually in the moment. You know, what sort of disorder, how is the mind out of sync now, out of balance now? What sort of medicine does it need to restore balance? And so it would be really nice to be moving through life with a whole collection of skillful means, different strategies, different attitudes that have been practiced, that are accessible, that we trust, that we know how they work, and then we can just draw on them. And then it just becomes uh, really fluent. I mentioned in one of the small groups uh, interview that somebody did with Joseph Goldstein that was published in The Inquiring Mind, the journal for the Western Vipassana community. It's published a couple times a year. It's a wonderful journal if you don't receive it. It's a Donna-based journal. You can order and we always have a copy at the center, but you might want your own copy. And uh, a long time ago, he was interviewed, Joseph Goldstein was, and the person asked, so how are you practicing these days, Joseph? And he gave this wonderful answer for years. I, I think we had it up on our bulletin board, and I used to read it a lot at talks. And I'll have to paraphrase it now. I don't have a copy of it in front of me. But he said something like, well, my practice is quite seamless now. You know, sometimes naturally my attention goes to the breath or it goes to open attention or reflecting on loving kindness or you know, any number of other. <clears throat> and it's not even so much that I'm directing it. It just sort of finds its way. And it's, in that sense, it's very seamless. It's all, it's, it's all about not clinging. 
but the particular way the mind practices not clinging depends a lot on how we're clinging in this moment. So to counter the particular ignorance in this moment, the strategy needs to match the way the mind is caught, the way the mind is struggling or attaching or clinging, grasping. And I really appreciated that because I think when teachers talk that way, it shows a lot of respect for the students because it's not a clear-cut answer. Just do what I'm telling you to do, you know. I've often repeated what is uh, said in Burma. Um, The teachers who are lamenting the fact that the students don't follow what the teachers are saying say they'll bring up, you know, how much success these young women have in the Burmese monasteries because they don't say this piece, but in Burma, even today, um, but certainly over time, over the recent past, you know, uh, it's a pretty patriarchal society and uh, Saidas, the senior monks who teach, are at like the top of the heap, probably more respected than anybody else in the society. And especially the women, and especially the younger women, you know, hold these Sayadaws in high regard. And so when they, and it's now the habit in, in certain circles, in a lot of circles in Burmese culture, for young people to go to the monastery before they get married and, you know, do three months or even longer retreat. Um, as one of my teachers there said, you know, he strongly recommends that the women uh, achieve the first stage of awakening, first stage of enlightenment before they get pregnant and have kids. It just works so much better. <laughs> I thought, oh, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, the young women would go often and they'd have great success because the teacher would say something and when they'd do it. And in a way, it's too late for us to go back there. You know, we just culturally, we have... Uh, in mostly, I think, wholesome way, a lot of skepticism around authorities. And so, you know, authority figure says something to us and we're going to check it out. You know, we're not going to just say, oh, they're probably right and do it. And we're going to kind of have some skepticism. You know, we're going to want some proof. Like, how do I know? Why should I put all that effort in if, it, if what you're saying may not be true? And so this is just our predicament. So it's really, we have to motivate ourselves. We're not going to, there aren't too many situations, you know, unless you just happen to run into somebody who uh, is just so inspirational and clear and, uh, and has that sort of, you know, my way or the highway attitude that you're just going to do it. You know, it's a pretty specific set of circumstances. You're going to be in this position where you're getting a lot of information and you don't really at this point in your practice know what is best to do and so you have to um, accept the responsibility of gaining confidence in how to use these tools and so part of what we're doing you know on retreat is we're really seeing what works sometimes when people report insights, like in the small groups, even today, I mentioned it to someone, you know, it's really useful to reflect then later, in hindsight, exactly what unfolded, blow by blow. What was the mind doing? How was the mind relating? And then what happened? What, what, what did the mind do? How was it relating? And then what happened? So that we understand very clearly, like, how was the mind practicing that led to this period of time of stillness, or this powerful insight arising, seeing something you haven't seen before. How did that come to be? It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't random. What did the mind do? And then that that's our goal, in a way. I saw that happen. Maybe I didn't see it at the time, but upon reflection, I now understand how it is that, that mind, this mind came to understand that and how that understanding has changed everything, even in a little way. But still, it's an insight. It's It's a step towards freedom, releasing of the heart. And so we want to kind of own it completely, like, oh yeah, oh yeah, this is how it works. To some degree, I know more how this whole path works. 
in a way, the whole awakening process is just understanding what the path is. Just because we're hardcore Buddhists, you know, and we go on retreats and we sit most days and we read and study, doesn't mean we know what the path is. We might intuit there's a path. We might have some somewhat vague, somewhat clear ideas about, you know, principles of the path or general shape of the path. But I'm pretty clear now that, uh, you know, most of us are on the stage, in the stage of figuring out what the path is. You know, we're not, it's unusual for somebody to really be unshakable about the path. That's really what we mean by the first stage of awakening. There's no doubt about what the path is anymore. And the clarity of the path is so strong, you can't really forget it for, for much of a length of time. You can still slide into sort of non-path activities, you know, like being really mean or really stupid or really greedy, but not for long, because the sense of the path, of what to do with this life, how to work with the mind, it's just like this resonant thing. That's my understanding, at least. And, of course, the whole point of the skillful means is the sense of freedom. Uh, before I forget, I want to just mention, I, I now have two handouts out on the bulletin board. One is um, Saida Utejaniya's, I forget if it's 23 points or 33 points, um, around right attitude. So this is really about open attention practice. And then I also have a translation of the Mindfulness of Breathing Sutta. So that just, you know, in terms of that range of skillful means, a more classic directed meditation practice, the mindfulness of breathing, uh, an undirected practice like Saida teaches, Saida Utejaniya teaches this open attention where you're really being mindful of the knowing, mindful of the mind that knows, and you're not so concerned with the objects that are being known but that the mind is knowing. What's the mind knowing? What's the mind doing? So you can just uh, get refreshed as often as you need to by looking at those handouts if you need that support. And as I was just saying, the, uh, the whole point of understanding skillful means is to um, this one thing that we all naturally care about, which is suffering and the end of suffering. I shouldn't say we all. I mean, there are a lot of us and a lot of us here and at times that it isn't relevant that there's suffering and the end of suffering. We're so, in a sense, caught up in life that we're oblivious to that, that truth, I guess, that there is suffering and there is an end to suffering, that the heart experiences being burdened, being fearful, being needy, and there's release from that. And, you know, when we're really distracted, that seems irrelevant. You know, when we're trying to decide whether to buy a house or not, or new car or not, or get married or not, or to get involved in this or that or not, it, these things seem important. And we forget that what's really important is the quality of the heart. And is it bound up or is it free of being bound up? That's actually what we care about when we're not distracted. Is the heart bound up or not? And so, to uh, all the skillful means are really supports for better understanding the experience of suffering and better understanding the experience of freedom from suffering. That's all we really need to wake up to. We need to wake up to the experience of our heart being burdened by life, and we need to wake up to our heart not being burdened. And in particular, we want to wake up to that transition as the heart is getting burdened, getting weighed down, because that cause and effect, seeing that, is really relevant. And we're really interested in waking up to times when the heart is releasing its burden, because that's relevant. Like, well, how does that happen? How does the heart put down the load? Let go of grasping. Let go. Go beyond fear.
you know, the basic way that, you know, the, the basic way these skillful means inform, whether it's urgency or acceptance or directing the attention or just letting things come and go, really practicing the non-doing. And I'll give instructions tomorrow morning during the sit about, uh, at least for part of the sit at 8.30, about this non-doing. One teacher, um, Shokni Rinpoche, this Tibetan teacher, when I was on retreat with him, you know, one of his instructions was non-distraction, non-distracted, non-meditation. That's what he asked his students to do. I want you to practice non-distracted, non-meditation. And so you can even try that for periods of time tonight, you know, as you're sitting, or even, you know, once you're in your bedroom and not ready for sleep, but not wanting to go back into the meditation hall. And then you can just practice this non-distracted, non-meditation. Like, why isn't, why, why not just this non, non-doing? But non-doing doesn't mean you're stopping yourself from doing anything. It means you're not intentionally trying to make things different or trying to do anything. You're just letting things happen with non-distraction. So you're not getting lost in the activity, but you're not trying to stop it, you're not trying to make it happen. So really, the only effort is in non-distraction, like not being distracted, not being confused by whatever's happening in the mind. All about understanding the experience of suffering and freedom from suffering. That's really what it's all about. This is, uh, I want to read a couple things in regards to this. This is again from Larry Rosenberg's book, Breath by Breath. He says, you know, he's talking about the two of the Buddha's most famous discourses, the one on mindfulness of breathing and the one on the four foundations of mindfulness. And he says these, both of these uh, discourses, talks by the Buddha, end in relinquishment, which is not a giving up of anything we really owned, just a clear seeing of the way things are. Ajahn Buddhadasa, which was, who was one of um, Larry Rosenberg's teachers, had a beautiful way of putting it. We are giving back to nature the things that we have falsely appropriated from it. This mind, these feelings, this body, the breath itself, do not really belong to us. When we see that, instead of, instead of feeling deprived of something we thought was ours, we feel a great freedom, the liberation that the Buddha promised. So this is a nice way of understanding these skillful means, helping the heart, helping the mind to abandon to let go of its grasping of what was never really ours to begin with. You know, holding something that can't be held. That's why there's such an emphasis on this insight into anicca, impermanence, or the ephemeral, insubstantial nature of thought, of sensation, of sound, of all things, all the aggregates, all the sense bases. They, with these skillful means, they're revealed as being insubstantial. In other words, it doesn't make sense to grasp. It's this paradigm shift from seeing things in terms of content, my life, my thought, my sensations, my pain in my knee, to seeing things as a process. You know, a process never really becomes a thing because it's always ever unfolding. And in that way, it helps us sort of at least us assimilate a sense of um, the insubstantial nature. You know, when we switch from content-based reality to process-based reality, a Nietzsche, impermanence-based reality. This is from Joseph Goldstein's book, a wonderful book called Insight Meditation, The Practice of Freedom. Right at the beginning, page five, he has a little one-page chapter on fear of enlightenment. He says, meditators sometimes report that 
fear of liberation holds them back in their practice. As they proceed into uncharted territory, fear of the unknown becomes an obstacle to surrender. But this is not really fear of enlightenment. It is rather fear of ideas about enlightenment. We all have notions about freedom, dissolving in a great burst of light or in a great cosmic flash. The mind might invent many different images of the experience of liberation. Sometimes our ego creates images of its own death that frighten us. Liberation means letting go of suffering. Do you fear the prospect of being free from greed? Do you fear being free from anger or delusion? Probably not. Liberation means freeing ourselves from those qualities in the mind that torment and limit us. So freedom is not something magical or mysterious. It does not make us weird. Enlightenment means purifying our mind and letting go of those things that cause us so much suffering in our, in our lives. It is very down to earth. He goes on to say, you know, imagine holding a hot coal. We wouldn't be afraid of letting it go. It actually would be a quite natural thing just to let it go. And that's why the emphasis is on seeing things clearly, using the skillful means to reveal the way it is, because letting go is something that happens. I'll talk more about this tomorrow night, letting go, surrender, as a skillful means. And that's something that we do. That's the misunderstanding of that skillful means of letting go. It's true we want to be interested in letting go as a natural process. And we want to especially be interested in what are the causes that support letting go so that we can go beyond the wrong-headed notion that I should be letting go. And we can, we can hate ourselves to a strong degree because we haven't let go of things we know we should be letting go of. I mean, who in this room isn't holding something they know they should be letting go of. We all are, to some degree. And then we get upset about it. But it's a misunderstanding of letting go, as a skillful means. It isn't something the ego does. We're bad because we haven't let go. We should let go. Letting go is an act of nature. Nature lets go. And what are the causes that support the natural letting go, nature letting go? Well... You know, the hint, I'll give you a little clue from tomorrow, tomorrow night's talk. Seeing things as they are. Seeing the ephemeral nature is the cause for letting go. At the very end of this short chapter, Jack, or Joseph Goldstein says, When the Buddha described his teaching in the most concise way, he said that he taught one thing and only one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. Understanding this reality for ourselves frees our mind and opens more fully the possibilities for compassionate action in the world. Somebody was mentioning simplicity, you know, just in terms of where, how we use these skillful means, you know, moving in the direction of what is really simple. So it's more about abandoning unnecessary, unhelpful doing than it is about attaining something or getting somewhere, reaching perfection. It's really a sloughing off of what's unnecessary. Some, at some point, the Buddha was asked, you know, why is it that his students seem so peaceful and radiant? And he replied, they do not lament the past, nor crave for things in the future, but maintain themselves in whatever comes. Therefore, they are serene. So I've been talking about these skillful means and... Um, you know, over time, collecting a whole bunch of skillful means. And I mentioned in one of the small groups, it's really useful and, and very much part of this tradition to memorize the skillful means, to be able to bring them to mind. You know, there's a lot of times people say, oh, there are a lot of lists in Buddhism because it used to be an oral tradition. And that may be true, but the other reason there are a lot of lists in this tradition is that 
the whole point is to be independent in the teachings where you can bring them up, you can access them. And this whole array, like it, it was said that what made the Buddha such a powerful teacher is that he had this great sensitivity, maybe you'd call it psychic power, where he could really tune in to where the person was coming from and then his instruction would be what the person needed to hear. You know, the medicine that that mind, what wasn't the mind seeing? And you know, we don't need to give ourselves or get from a teacher the whole path because it's not going to help. All we need is a little light that will illuminate what's right in front of us but we're not seeing so we can take the next step. Because that's how the path unfolds. It's just one thing at a time. If we got the whole picture, we would just either forget it or we'd get so enthused we'd become some kind of fundamentalist and be totally intoxicated with the idea of the path and never walk the path, never open up to the path. So we need to have these, this collection of skillful means and we need to be fluent enough that we can actually bring it to mind. You know, that's why it's useful to memorize and have a sense of how to understand the five hindrances and the wholesome factors of mind, what's called the seven factors of awakening. It's a really useful list. It's useful to understand and be able to pull up the precepts and why we use the precepts. It's important to have some working knowledge of what is a refuge for us, to be reflecting on refuge. Whether you use the traditional formulation of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, or you have your own version of that, it doesn't really matter. What matters is, does it work? You know, does it help clarify your mind in particular circumstances? And then all of these skillful means are like good friends. It's like our community. You know, so... And, and literally, it's true. I mean, one of the great things about spiritual communities is that at any given moment, you know, you look around the room and somebody is modeling one skillful means or another. You know, you see somebody who's uh, like being really patient and you just sort of get that. And they remind you about, oh yeah, that patience, that's a really good thing to be able to do when you need it. And you see another person being really fearless and sort of stepping up and meeting whatever's going on in their life that they'd rather not have to meet. But there they are, not backing off, but really turning toward what's difficult to turn toward. You know, and you see somebody else really exploring states of calm, really letting their mind get still, really unpacking that capacity of the heart to get really quiet and really peaceful and really happy. You know, and other people, you know, just moving right into service and taking care of what needs to be done in the world and not being afraid to lose their uh, equanimity, not being afraid to sort of be thrown around a little by life, sort of having confidence that the whole system will come back into balance. So we, we see it around us, you know, when we have wise friends, but we can also keep these friends even closer than that through our own memorization and our own repeated reflection, like pulling it up, trying it out, just in the same way that musicians and athletes and artists, you know, they train in all the different pieces of their craft. So they're really good at it. You know, and when they start to lose some facility, they say, they say you know, I need to find an opportunity to get that skill back online because... I realized the other day when I needed it, it wasn't very accessible. So maybe for a month I'll do loving-kindness practice. You know, because yesterday when I really needed it, I couldn't manufacture, I couldn't bring it up. So I'm just going to develop some momentum in it. You know, or, you know, earlier today I could have really used some intuitive sense that it's just empty. It's all just stuff happening. It's just nature happening. But I couldn't, generate that view. I couldn't find that view in the mind. So maybe I should study a little bit more and practice that view a little bit more so it's accessible. Because the whole point of these skillful means is that they should be available and doable, like that we have a way into them. You know, we've created a bridge. Otherwise, it's just an abstraction, like we know these things, but we don't know how to 
make them real in a moment of our lived experience. So what's the value of them? We really want tools that are well used, you know, we know how to use them, we know how to take care of them, we can pull them out, and they do what they're supposed to do. There's a wonderful little booklet, I think maybe I mentioned, and it's got a great title, and it's related to this talk too, Now is the Knowing, you know, just, which is a great skillful means, just that recognition, now is the knowing. Like, knowing is... Knowing is what's really going on right now. And that's, that's a very skillful bridge into emptiness, into non-attachment, is to realize what's really happening now is knowing. Anyway, in this book he has a chapter on um, mindfulness of breathing, Anapanasati practice. And Ajahn Sumedho, this is Ajahn Sumedho, this wonderful Western monk, uh, one of the senior disciples of Ajahn Chah, this great Thai master. And Ajahn Sumedho says, we don't try to make the breath long or short or control it in any way, but to simply stay with the normal inhalation and exhalation. The breath is not something that we create or imagine. It is a natural process of our bodies that continues as long as life lasts. Whether we concentrate concentrate on it or not, So it is an object that is always present. We can turn to it at any time. We don't have to have any qualifications to watch our breath. We do not even need to be particularly intelligent. All we have to do is be content with and aware of one inhalation and exhalation. Wisdom does not come from studying great theories and philosophies, but from observing the ordinary. So now, just that as a skillful means. Let's say we practice it so the mind knows how to come back to the breath, knows how to simply know one breath going in, one breath going out. It's such a potent skillful means because in just doing that one thing, which is really available for us, we have to let go of everything else. You can't sort of uh, really be with the breath and be worrying about tomorrow or, you know, lost anywhere. So, this is like just understanding what a powerful bridge a moment of mindfulness is, or coming back to the body. A little later, I think I mentioned yesterday, you know, or maybe recently in a talk at the center, uh, he talks about how you know, equanimity and peace, this isn't something we're used to. So one of the things, being attentive to something ordinary, like walking is ordinary, breathing is ordinary, reaching for the light switch is ordinary, is uh, just that direct experience of peace, the peace of what's ordinary. Because ordinariness doesn't agitate the mind in the way that a pleasant experience does, and an unpleasant experience does. So, we're always immersed in a lot of ordinary experiences, but we tend not to ignore them, I mean, we tend to ignore them. So if we really, like as a skillful means, learn how to turn toward what's ordinary, like in that strong commitment, like really showing up, because we have to overcome the tendency to ignore, we'll find a, a kind of peace that's really amazing. I mean, one of the nice things about the absence of duties and responsibilities, on the one hand, it can freak us out on retreat where, I mean, you just sit and walk and people actually start getting grateful for their yogi jobs. You know, I don't care if it's scrubbing out a toilet, at least it's something to do. But we can cultivate a taste for non-doing, just being ordinary. I recommend this. It's the hardest kind of practice, but instead of, you know, spending lots of money to fly out to IMS or Spirit Rock and sit with some of the better-known teachers and do the retreat and just carve out a half day at home, you know, where you don't have any duties and responsibilities, and just hang out. And just notice how hard it is to not do anything. 
to just sort of sit on the couch, and then go stand by the window and look out at the squirrels, you know, and then, you know, make a cup of tea, sit back down on the couch, walk around the block, sit down on the couch, make a cup of tea, you know, go to the toilet, make lunch. It's really hard because we don't realize it, but we're very addicted to being a doer and getting somewhere. And it's scary for us to let life slip by. And this is why, like, when you go on a retreat, it really feels like we're doing something, especially if you have to fly somewhere to go on a retreat. And if the teacher's, you know, written lots of books and people talk, then it feels like, God, oh, I'm doing something. I've got myself. I'm with this person who really knows what they're doing. And we feel good about, like, we're really sort of taking our life by the horns and making something out of it. Now we're really becoming a Buddhist and a serious <laughs> practitioner. And it's, uh, you know, we're missing maybe a more powerful lesson. And so, especially those of you who practice for a while, to really start doing some practice on your own, where you don't, where it doesn't look like much. You don't have the accoutrements of, like, something that looks like you're really doing something. You don't even have your meditation cushion out, you know. And you're just really seeing, like, the, the freedom, it's either here or it's nowhere. So if it's here, I don't need accoutrements. I don't need my meditation shawl. I don't need a schedule. I don't need, I don't need to go to my Dharma books. To really challenge yourself. Now, start with short periods of time so you have a sense of success, or survival at least, <laughs> and then build up. I've done it more recently, uh, more than I have, you know, where I, like, uh, like maybe two years ago, I did a, a, a full month at home. Um, and I really tried to work in this way. And Saito Utejaniya's teachings really support this way of practice. And some of you know this about him, but he did a lot of his practice as a layperson, parent, business person. Uh, he had a little shop. I forget what kind of shop he had, but a little shop, um, small business. And, uh, but he practiced continuously in that environment, you know, and he kept his life pretty simple, but still, you know, had a business, had a family and developed really deep insight. But his practice was continuous. He wasn't, and he had done a lot of formal practice before that. So we want to, um, see this also as a skillful means, this, uh, interest in what's ordinary. And this is a nice thing about when we're on a formal retreat, really getting in our bones how walking can be practiced. And not just when during your walking sessions, but whenever you're going down the hall, leaving this meditation hall, moving up to the dining hall or down from the dining hall, just to let that movement, that ordinariness be your practice, like to be free in that. And the same, it's not just watching the breath when we're here, but... If you're working with the breath as one of your skillful means, then any time you take a breath, just completely give yourself to it. Just let the whole thing become the nature of movement, the nature of the breath moving in the body. Let it be that simple. The breath is coming in. No other truth, just the breath coming in, just the breath going out. What a relief it is, as Ajahn Sumedho suggesting, just to let the breath come in and the breath go out. And to let it be that simple for a moment. And not to worry that, oh, I'm going to lose it. Because that's not really letting the breath come in, thinking that, yeah, but this is just one breath. I still got to go home and work. Or... So when we give ourselves over to the ordinary, we discover a real happiness. It's not ephemeral. The other thing about these skillful means is that... Uh, they cause doubt to fall away. You know, the, when we have a skillful means to call upon, if it's really a skillful means, it's bringing us into the moment. You know, doubt only arises when we're not in the moment and we're in our thoughts about like how screwed up I am or how much I don't know what's going on or how much I want to know, want to get clarity. When we're in our judgments about ourselves, then we can spin in doubt for a long time. But when we pick up a skillful means and it does what it's supposed to do, which is bringing us into the moment, 
then doubt falls away. It's like uh, Joseph Goldstein, I think, said this, you know. When you're, you know, he would sometimes have people move their hand back and forth, you know, and just really pay attention, the hand moving back and forth. And you realize there's absolutely no doubt in the mind when the hand is moving back and forth. You're watching me, but you should be doing it yourself. <laughs> it doesn't work watching me. <laughs> but you get the point, right? When, and you can just try it. Don't, don't be shy. <laughs> it doesn't cost anything. <laughs> you know, when you do something really simple, but it's the wholeheartedness of the attention to it, it's like when you really give yourself to that experience, all of a sudden a lot of negative qualities of mind just disappear. Like, there's no worry, there's no doubt, there's no question, am I good enough, am I worthy, am I no good? And that, I mean, it really teaches us something about these skillful means, about, you know, just the different ways we can show up, whether it's, you know, just knowing that something's being known, or this is just something being known. This is just something being known, just a thought being known. Or whether you're directing the attention in some way to the walking, to the moving, to the breathing. And every little opportunity, we want to start to associate the skillful means with freedom, the taste of freedom. That's how we learn to trust the skillful means, is they taste like freedom. It's not a should. Yeah, the Buddha said we should do this. Mark says we should do this. I read this book, it said we should do this. But it's like, in our mind, that activity, that skillful means, it has the flavor of freedom. You know, it's like um, certain objects you have might have like really positive associations. Could be a rock you got from Lake Superior that you've had for a number of years, or, you know, a sweater that you always wear when you're on vacations. And, you know, and you pull it out and it like has that energy where it's the same thing, like we're so happy to go back to the breath because it has all these associations of freedom. Or we're so happy to sort of rest back into the knowing because it has all these positive, wholesome associations. Or so happy to reflect on loving kindness. To Just that phrase, may you be happy. You know, because we've repeated it so many times and actually touched... Uh, true, you know, spontaneous loving-kindness. So the phrase, that activity, is associated with the actual experience of the heart loving. So just the, just the word metta, like now, sometimes when I'm doing metta, I just repeat the word metta, or the word love. And that's enough. Because it's like, uh, it's just associated with the actual experience of the heart opening and radiating out in all directions. And see, this is how we strengthen the, the skillful means. It's this, uh, we learn to trust it because it tastes like freedom. It feels like the opening of the heart. So tomorrow I'll talk about... Uh, a little bit more about these skillful means as good friends and also talk about the skillful means of letting go because we hear so much about that as I mentioned so we'll come back to this tomorrow night but in our small groups it'd be nice to hear from people tomorrow you know all the different skillful means that you keep close at hand that you've learned to trust over the years that have a good flavor in your heart, you know, taste like freedom for you, that you can pull, pull out, you can access at the right time, in the right way, and it will have its effect. It would be nice to hear from each other around that. But let's just take a few moments and uh, let go of the words, maybe take a breath or two together.
And thanks everyone for listening. So we have walking practice. A couple people have one-on-one -on -one practice meetings now. And just a reminder, if ever you're the last person in the room and you're leaving, always check, make sure the candles are out. So we shouldn't keep them on if nobody's in the room. So we'll come back at 9 o'clock for the chanting. Have that out so you're ready for the chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.